many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. My guest on Out of the Box today is a graphic designer as a day job, but found his true calling as a documentary photographer. Ian Flanders unflinchingly points his camera right into the, the complex worlds and I guess the ethical minefields really of sex trafficking, prostitution and death. Welcome in Out of the Box. Hello, thank you for having me. And you, you've you've got all your music ready for today. So yeah. as as per usual, we have a you're basically guest DJing, but you know things that have stories from your life. So not necessarily the music that you love the most, mm-hmm. but the things that meant the most at some moment. Correct. What's our first song for the day? Uh, first track is uh, "The Beautiful People" by Marilyn Manson. So um, you're not into it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, musically not so much, um, but definitely as a person, as an artist. Um, I think he's he definitely laid the platform for where I started creatively. Um, I think my first exhibition was opened by Stephen Dupont, who's a very famous Australian photographer, um, and he dissected my work extremely well. And the one thing I remember, he said, "Your photography has an element of a fuck you." And if there's anyone who's influenced me in such a way, it's Marilyn Manson. <laughs> that's great. That's a that's a very high compliment <laughs> to yeah. someone's work. I started watching uh, Marilyn Manson because you mentioned you mentioned him to me when we were talking yesterday, and and I started watching interviews with him, and mm. he's just so calm, so cool, so collected, and says some deep stuff. And you know, when he when he's doing interviews with like people who are religious conservatives and stuff like that, he holds his ground so well. Yeah. But it's definitely that element of the fuck you. Yes. <laughs> All right, it's an out of the box and FBI 94.5. My guest today is Ian Flanders. Here we go. Marilyn Manson, beautiful people.
Oh, my God. 15-year-old Ash is so, so stoked about what's happened right here on Out of the Box today. A little bit of Marilyn Manson on your radio, brought in by my guest today, Ian Flanders. Thanks for bringing that one on. My absolute pleasure. And uh, I was thinking it would be interesting to talk about, just because our next song is, is a Rolling Stones track, and I kind of wanted to look at your most recent project. Yeah. So... Where did you most recently go in the world to, to create a photo documentary? Uh, that was Kathmandu in Nepal uh, last year. Um, I actually flew out three weeks, maybe two weeks after the earthquake devastation. Um, but I went there to document um, at the Pashupatinath temple. I hope I've pronounced that right. Um, I would not know if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, See, so yeah, I guess because that followed uh, Cambodian work um, and I wanted something to challenge me further. And I thought the two themes that I document are sex and death. Um, and the Pashupath temple is where Hindus go to cremate um, their loved ones. So it was part of the reason that you went there because it was post-earthquake and you knew it would be a no, busy time? No, or? not at all. Um, I actually planned it before the earthquake happened. Um, yeah, when the earthquake happened, I thought, do I really want to go? So yeah. <laughs> There's an element of disaster an porn there, yeah. you know. It definitely um, uh, feels a bit iffy, you know. Yeah, but I, you know, there was, for the earthquake, that was for the professionals, the photojournalists to cover. I wanted to stay true to myself, and that was to focus on and explore death, pretty much, at the temple. I wonder where your death obsession comes from. Do you have any idea? No, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I think... Um, Basically, the photography for me is exploring my fears and death. I think being a Western person is always high on um, on everyone's list. Um, I think it's the element of the unknown, and photography for me is always a light. My camera is my shield and it's my torch, and I, it takes me into those places that normally I wouldn't want to confront. So you mentioned it's a, it's a Western fear. Mm. So... Nepal, you're going into kind of Eastern context. How do they deal differently with death? And that was the most um, liberating aspect of that project was how confronting um, death is and how um, content they are with it. For us, it's more. it seems to be more of a taboo. It's hidden away. Um, this is out there in the open. Um, families uh, have their loved ones. Um, the, the, the corpse just carried on a, on a very basic... Um, Oh, what's the thing? Is it called? a pyre or is it like a like a hospital kind yes, of thing? Yes, it's like a hospital yeah. sort of um, thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's just draped over with some cloth, which has some holy meaning, and then the drapes are pulled back, and some ritual, some cultural ritual um, elements are performed, and then the corpse is burnt in for everyone to see who's there, such as myself. Um, completely opposite to the Western. Completely model, opposite. Which is private oven, and then you get a. Um, exactly, and the families were very open. Most of the families, I'd say, were very open to having me there. Um, really, I find that so interesting because if I was if I was there grieving the death of a loved one, there was someone there with a camera. Mm. I would find that kind of upsetting. And I think, looking in hindsight, that is the the big ethical, um, the cultural difference. Um, but I also like I was there eleven consecutive days, minimum four hours, and I always made sure I was there for at least 30 minutes to an hour, spending time not taking photos. I wanted to be seen. I didn't want to be seen as... I didn't want to be known as a fly on the wall, so to speak. I sat with the families while their loved one was... Uh, being be, cremated. Being cremated. So did you have conversations with these families? Were they English-speaking? Yeah, the, the English-speaking members of the families did approach me. 
Um, and they always asked me what I was doing there because um, for the most part, photography isn't allowed there. Um, the tourists are on the other side of the bank. Um, but to make this work, you have to get into it. Um, yeah, and they, they were, as soon as I told them I was there for, um, to document it, to explore it, to understand it, they took that as a compliment. Really? That's yeah. so interesting. It was more me wanting to understand their culture and the reasons behind the cremations into the Holy River. And they took that as a, as a compliment, as I said. Could, so could I ask you a little bit more about how the cremation process works, especially in the temple that you're at? So they're put on a pyre. Yep. And it's a light. For how long are people it's, watching this? Uh, a lot of people have to go. There's, a, there's one interesting thing. I'm not sure what it was called, but a book was handed out. If it was a large family gathering and family members had to sign. And once they signed that book, a lot of the family mem- the um, distant family members would leave. But it was always the close family members that would stay as close to the end as possible because the body, it everything becomes ash, the corpse and, and the wood. Um, and by that stage, it's, it's honestly, it was mostly me at the end taking photos of the ash. Um, it was very rare to see the family members right to the end. Interesting. Yeah. So for 11 days, at least four hours per day, mm. you're watching cremations. Yeah. What does cremation smell like? Wow. Um, yeah, sorry if that's well, a great question. <laughs> It's, look, it, it's honestly, without sounding crude or offensive, it was just like a normal burning, if you could, if, if you could understand that. There wasn't a macabre or a detesting smell to it at all. So it was like, like barbecue, like you're smelling the, you know, a, just a wood it's fire? It's a wood fire, yeah, yeah, yeah wood fire. The, the one thing I noticed most was the ash uh, coming all over me and thinking that this isn't just wood on me right now. <laughs> wow. So I guess what did I want to know what you've learned because I can't imagine that for eleven days you're watching people kind mm. of go up and smoke and you, you just kind of walk away from that unchanged. Yeah. What did it What did it kind of make you think? I th- it was the most grounding and centering experience I've had in my life. Um, I think it's it's hypnotic in a sense too. I guess if you can imagine like watching a campfire, everyone stares at the campfire. The catch is there is a corpse in front of you, and like I said, I was spending time with the family, was sitting with the families. So I've got a lot of people around me mourning. And it was the, I guess, and one thing actually one family member did say was, no matter what your upbringing is in Nepal, um, as a Hindu, um, no matter how many mountains you've climbed, no matter, no matter how many uh, handshakes you've done in your life, they all end up in the same cremation process. Um, and I found that very... Um, centering you know it didn't matter where you came from we all ended up in the same um as worm food i guess <laughs> <laughs> or as ash on your yeah, outfit correct yeah <laughs> so we've got a song by the rolling stones right now Jumpin' jack flash mm. and can you tell us why you wanted to bring this song on this one is well that body of work it's called death right and i've dedicated that to my mum um was uh, because it was such an intense experience and it my mum obviously gave me life, but she gives me a reason for a life, and this is one of her favourite songs growing up. So this one's for my mum. Aww. <laughs> Oh, 
out of the box. <laughs> out of the box. On FBI. Thank you.
tuned into Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. And those voices, mm. amazing. Where Where is this band from? Uh, that, they're from Cambodia. Um, two female singers, they're sisters actually, uh, Khmer girls. And the musician is an Australian expat who lives over there. Um, so, yeah. So, how did you come across them? Uh, I discovered them in Phnom Penh um, in a bar after... I was over there uh, doing a long-term project um, called By the River, um, which went over three and a half years. But um, yeah, due to the intensity of that program, that uh, project, and every night, I thought I'd do something different and go out to a bar, and I discovered these guys. So the the project was intense, and before you mentioned that you do cover sex and mm. death a lot in your photography. So can you tell us a little bit about By the River? What was your what was your plan when you were going over to Cambodia? Uh, the initial plan was. Um, I, I wanted to explore um, sex trafficking, sex slavery. Um, I remember seeing some documentaries um, on YouTube and I thought, this looks intense. But what I found was nothing. I couldn't find anything. I stand to be corrected, but I couldn't find anything of documenting the women, why they were in enslavement. Um, it was all post-rescue work. Um, and I wanted to explore that and give it a go. So I took myself over to Cambodia. Um, and I deliberately went to the places where I was told not to go. Oh, yeah? Is that yes. how you came across? Because you were working from one particular place? Um, yes, yes. Um, but I spent, I initially went over there for f- four weeks and I didn't, the place that I end up documenting over the three years, I didn't find until the last six or seven days while I was walking around. I basically walked around in the infamous areas. There's two districts of Phnom Penh, which are notorious for trafficking and sex slavery. Um, and virgin trade um, so I went there during the night um, basically walking around like a stray dog Wow so did you stick out like a sore thumb yes. in those areas I described myself I had a blog at the time and I described myself as Gumby because that's truly how much I stood out if, if you were white or a westerner in these areas you were either lost or you were there for uh, to exploit um, street working women or enslaved women that's interesting because, I mean, if you were there for three years documenting a particular location, surely you aroused some suspicion. Mm. You know, how did how did you manage to stay documenting this one shack, I guess? Yeah, well, I guess firstly, um, I'm jumping here, but I was dealing with an NGO while I was over there and they expressed their shock that I was allowed into this brothel. And when I say brothel... I'm talking about a very humble, dingy shack. What does it look like? What's the well, vibe in there? Well, um, it's very, it's very uh, dirty timber. To say that that's all it really is, it's just a timber shack. Um, there's no signs or anything. It's during the daytime. It's closed. It's padlocked from the outside. The women are locked inside. Oh, really? Um, if you drive past, you will never know there's a brothel there. Impossible. It's not until night time when the door opens. And you see one or two women just with their faces peeking out. That's it. Um, and next door is next door to the shack was um, a lady selling soda drinks on, on big eskies. And believe it or not, she was the trafficker um, who was the Madame Hassan of these women. Did you guess this at the get-go? No, nah, not at all. Um, Did you ask them? Well, not, not directly. It was because I went in there to take photos um, which took a bit of time to do, which was a process. Um, and one of the girls, well, both, there was two women that I built up a relationship with who ended up being half-sisters. Um, and they made it very clear that if 
I was known for taking photos inside the shack, they would be beaten. Um, and they were, they did tell me that they could face death. Um, so, and they used hand signals to, to, to indicate it was the lady outside. Wow. Didn't that scare you off though, knowing that it could result in... Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was, absolutely, it was, but I made a choice and I made an ethical choice that, you know, I'm not a professional, so why am I there? If I was, if I enter those brothels to document it, I'm either a morbid tourist or I stay there to help the women. And once I saw just how dire these, this situation was with the women, I made a choice that I wasn't going to give up, wasn't going to stop until those women had every opportunity for a new, new life. A new door had to be open for them and I was going to explore everything possible and I did. So a bit of context with mm. the Cambodian sex trafficking situation, especially as, as it applies to the women that you were trying to help. Yeah. How do they get there? What kind of what kind of tricks are used to get them into the situation? They don't go in there willingly. Yeah. Well, I can only speak for the women that I documented. Um, it's, one, it, it's very complex, the whole sex industry over there. It's uh, many different levels. Um, the girls that I spoke to, one of them was misled into going there. She thought she was going to work in a coffee shop as a sales assistant, was her words. Um, and when she arrived at the brothel, then she knew what her life was going to become. Um, these women themselves, they live, they're Vietnamese women. I, should, I don't know if I mentioned that yet. Um, so they live on the Cambodian border, or the Vietnamese side, um, and they all came from the same small area, and so did the traffickers. They actually knew each other. So it's, as the NGO mentioned to me, it's the, the greatest hurdle they try to understand is how culturally ingrained that this can be, and this was an example of that. These, the traffickers, um, basically hire, rent the shack and pay off a trafficking syndicate who then also pay off the police. So wow. it's a very tight-knit group and for them to let me into it um, was quite um, a bit of a shock for myself and the NGO because when I found this brothel, there was many that didn't let me in. And that is the common thing because white people mean trouble over there, what, meaning they could bring attention NGO attention, help to the girls. Helping them actually means trouble. And that was the biggest ethical uh, hurdle for me to get over was even though I'm thinking I'm helping them, I am bringing trouble upon them because they knew the traffickers and that means the traffickers were going to go to jail if a raid happened. But the other flip side of the coin of that is there's a chance for these girls to get a new life. So how did you actually earn their trust over time? Because, you know, if I was in mm. that situation and someone came in with a camera, I would feel potentially even exploited. You know, yeah. I, I would feel like here I am trapped in a shack. This is my life now. Yeah. And now someone's got a camera. How did you bridge that divide between meeting them in those situations and actually helping them? Well, I think the f to be pretty honest, I think the, the first time I saw one of the young women um, will give a good example of what I put myself into. Um, I brought out my camera. As soon as I entered the room with her, she undressed. I put up my hand to say, no, 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 it's okay. We're not going to do what you normally do. Um, and I brought out my camera to indicate I was here to take photos. She didn't speak any English, so I didn't speak any Vietnamese. Um, and she proceeded to curl up in the fetal position crying. And she was pleading for me to, her words were boom, boom. That's the only English she spoke other than $5, $10. And she was pleading for me to abuse her basically 
as opposed to taking the photos. The Why? Because that was safer for her. If I did what everyone, what all the locals were doing, it was what is expected. Um, and to answer your question on the trust, I put it down to me not abusing the women. By keep going there daily, um, understanding the women. I asked them questions, when we, because we couldn't speak either language, um, I had notes written down in Vietnamese before I left to go to Cambodia. Um, asking them questions, are you here against your will? Are you okay? Just some basic personality questions as well. What's your favorite color? What, what are your dreams? What are your nightmares? Um, so I just kept daily doing that over a three and a half year period until um, I had a feeling that these women do trust me now and that I can help them somehow. So did you have to wait a long time before you could tell them I'm here to try and help you get out? Yeah, well, that actually didn't even happen until probably the third year or late in the second half year. Um, I think it was my sixth visit um, because I had no idea what I was dealing with. Um, I didn't know how to help the women at all. I had the advice of the NGO. I made sure I went through official channels. I took their advice on what we can do for them. Um, But the offer of help didn't happen until far late. I think there was, even though I was there with my camera, there was many times I never took a photo. Sometimes I was in there just holding their hands. How did you disguise the fact that you had a camera in there? Because that would have been a Mm. big red flag. Yeah. um, First advice the NGO gave me was hide your camera in your bag before you go into any of these places. So that was the first first thing to do. Um, But in the rooms themselves, I was blown away by how the girls helped me um, in that regard. Um, One of the women, she had a... My camera, I had to buy a new camera after my first experience because it had a loud shutter sound. Um, so she had this, like a blue tack material and she would roll it in her hands and it would create, create a crack. And it was like a little air bubble she was creating. So every time I took a photo, she would roll this blue tack and it would camouflage the sound of my shutter, basically. Um, and that really, those moments, I always reflect on and just reminds me of how much I was putting them at risk um, and myself to a degree. Did you ever have any close calls with, I guess, I mean, I don't know if they have anything you call security there, but mm. did you have anyone kind of, yeah, running in on there you was, guys? Yeah, there was one occasion. Um, blackouts or loss of power was very common in that part of uh, Phnom Penh. Um, the lights went out, and so the, I would use my light off my iPhone so they could see what they were writing. And I was in the room, pitch black, and the girl was writing, and one of her co-workers if you can use that term um, as a joke uh, barged the door open and said something in Vietnamese but scared the living hell out of me and the girl who was writing Um, as soon as the door kicked in she dropped the pen and paper she hit it and I turned the camera down on the floor um, because it was so dark in hindsight we got away with it Um, yeah but, but I mean, what did you have to do in the future to make sure oh, that, yeah. you know, you yeah, wouldn't sure. actually have a... Yeah, so after that, um, I noticed it was the next time, the next day I came in, uh, the girls made sure, because I was always clothed the entire time up until that point, but, and so were the women after they realised I wasn't there for the abuse. So what the girls did is, as soon as I entered the room, they made sure I stripped down to my underwear and themselves. And that was just in case that a similar scenario happens again, that we at least look like... Wow. I'm there with the appropriate reasons. Um, I watched your multimedia piece for By the River and there's a shot that you hold for quite a while and it's one of the women crying. Mm. 
Can you tell me the story behind this shot? Is there is there a story there? Yeah, there is. Um, that's a, um, a very special. It's a very special woman. She was probably the centre of my project. Um, she was the girl who curled up in the fetal position when I first saw her, pleading for me to perform um, abuse. Um, this was further into the project, and I asked her a question: Do you know why? Why you're coming to Phnom Penh? Something along those lines. And she wrote on the paper um, her answer, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but basically it was what I said earlier. She was led to believe she was going to work in Phnom Penh in a coffee shop. Um, and it wasn't until she arrived she realised what her life was now going to entail. After she wrote that, she put the pen and paper to the floor and she put her head to her knees and started to cry. Um, I could have dropped my camera and just sat beside her, but that's contrary to why I was there. This is the brutal reality of it. I'm not expecting people to feel comfortable with what I did. They shouldn't. I was uncomfortable. She's in fear. So if the viewer's uncomfortable, then I know I've done my job. Um, so I filmed as long as I could. And then I sat beside her and we held hands and the room was dark. Um, and so we just made hand shadows on the wall and thankfully she laughed or giggled, I should say. So I gave her some form of comfort. We've got a song to play now by Peter Gabriel. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about you wanted, why you wanted to bring this one on? This song I discovered, um, the cover of Heroes, David Bowie's track, um, while I was doing this project. Um, it rips my heart, this song. Um, and all I think about is that moment, that moment I filmed that girl. Is This song just reminds me of it. Um, because she's a mother, um, of, and I met that child back in Vietnam, and I just wanted her to to be the hero, you know, um, in a sense. It's, it's not really about me being the hero. This was about making the girls believe they could be the hero and make a change. Did you kind of go in thinking you've got a bit of a hero complex? Do you think you have a hero complex? I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's never entered my head, that one. Um, no, it, this was, this went beyond a photography project, far beyond anything along that. It went far beyond what I wanted. Um, my job was threatened. Um, when I was doing this and you know, I was asked, are you prepared to lose your job for this? And I said, yes. Um, it no longer was about me as the central figure. It was about the women. And I made sure I put them first. Heroes by Peter Gabriel, Bowie cover on your radio. I'm here with Ian Flanders on Out of the Box, FBI 94.5. Ever and ever 
Listen to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. My name is Ash Berdebez, and on the show today I have Ian Flanders, and that was a track by Peter Gabriel's cover of Heroes. Now, we were talking a bit about your project, By the River, mm-hmm. which is documenting uh, sex trafficking in in Cambodia, in a particular community, um, in, a, in a particular shack, really. Yeah. Now, you said you were doing this project for three years. Mm. When something's so flagrantly wrong and messed up as sex trafficking is happening and you have proof of it and you've created a relationship why does it take three years to get anything done by it it took three years for them to be rescued yeah it was um that was yeah it was that is the most common question i get asked and probably the hardest one to answer um and it was the one that also made me quite angry because i was given i had to the ngo was asking me to get evidence from the girls which is what i was doing Um, my photography led to those women being rescued um, and um, <clears throat> so, what kind of evidence was required for them to actually get out of there? Because I mean, three years worth of evidence, conversations, written word, yep. photographs. What was the piece of evidence that really turned it all? The evidence over? was uh, a nine-year-old girl. 
um, who end up being the child of one of the women that I helped to get out, um, to bring everything into perspective and the reality of this situation. One of the women I helped return back to Vietnam, and I was aware of my naivety as far as what then. I've, led, I've helped her get out, but what now? What she got? The education is very poor. So you're taking her back to a life of poverty. Correct, yeah. the exact reason you trafficked in the first place. Exactly. And unfortunately, she returned with her daughter. Um, and this is the, the woman who curled up in the fetal position crying. And to think that the dire situation she's in, she's returned with her daughter. And it was the presence of that nine-year-old girl that a raid could actually finally happen. Um, Why would she bring her daughter there? I can't answer that. I, I really can't. I, other than um, a broad, using a broad brush and looking at this cultural ethical thing, um, because there was only one girl in that shack that I'm aware of that was there against her will. The other women were there because it was upon family either instructions or it was what they were meant to do. Um, so this was just... This proved to me what the NGO first said is the greatest thing they find hard to understand, and that is the cultural element, that this, there's an element to this where it's expected. Where families willfully commit yes. a daughter to Correct. sex that, slavery, essentially, in order to do what? In order to pay for them? Correct. When I, I returned back to Vietnam with one of the women, there was two women I helped get out, um, and I was amazed. She hadn't seen her family for... Uh, it was five years. Um, she was... so. That's a story in, in, in itself. Um, I had to cross the border via um, an illegal um, crossing, the tra- which was organised by the traffickers. Um, and she, she was so excited to see her family. But when she returned, uh, and she was, all she kept saying was, Mama, Mama. She was so happy to see her mum. But when I got there after about five, ten minutes, I asked her, Where Mama? Where Mama? And Mum was just sitting on the floor. The mum never got up, never gave her a hug or anything. Um, and it was, it was these sort of things I thought, well, there's something deeper going on here. You know, this wasn't a girl who was taken away. Um, it was pretty clear that, um, and she admitted that she knew what she was getting into. So this was expected of her. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And as far as the um, taking three years um, for so long, I guess this is quite confronting. Um, I asked the NGO, why is it you know there's trafficked women here? Because they said to me, I discovered their shack and said, this doesn't feel right. And they said, yes, we, you have found trafficked women and they are enslaved. And so after the two, second year, I'm saying, what's taking you so long? You told me they're trafficked. You told me they're enslaved. And his reply was, we need clear evidence um, because the NGO has to get the approval of the Cambodian police to perform a raid. And he said, the Cambodian police will come back to us and say, we've got 100 brothels just like this. Why should we start with this one? Exact words told to me. So there's there's one photo that I've seen that you can't really publish mm. anywhere else. Uh, it's a young girl sitting on the floor in front of the fan. Yep. And why can't you publish that? She's the daughter um, that I've just mentioned, uh, roughly nine or ten years old. Um, so she was rescued. So um, being rescued from a, a shack with enslaved women. Um, Legally and ethically, it's impossible to show a photo of that young girl. She's not in the brothel at all. It's back home in Vietnam. But I do show it when I gave a talk. Well, I did show it when I gave a talk uh, mm. last year. Um, I just can't show it publicly. Because then she could be identified. Correct, yeah. But, I mean, the ethical problem with... I mean, there's a thousand ethical problems with the kind of photography that mm. you do, obviously. But you really... 
uh, like the normal strategy is to not show anyone's face in any of these socially marginalized or compromising yeah. situations. Why did you choose to show their faces? Uh, that was actually my first goal. That was my first thing I wanted to do because everything I found had either the women pixelated, their voices distorted, or shot from behind, or some black shadow over their face. And I just found that dehumanizing. But um, it could be for their privacy. Correct. Um, well, secondly, um, I never released my photos um, until the women were rescued. So I waited three years to do that. Um, so while basically they were in an element of danger, I didn't release any photographies. Um, as far as their privacy, um, in a way I had their approval um, to, to show the photos. They just didn't want their words were to me, don't show this word, these photos in Cambodia. Okay. I, I wanted to confront people. I want to make... Um, Everyone, I wanted to show their eyes, their fears, their emotions. Do you think that it really makes more of a difference when you create documentary photography showing faces as opposed to documentary with obscured faces? Absolutely. I think um, photography is a very powerful tool and we are drawn to, as human beings, to emotions. And you can't see someone's emotion from behind or a blacked out face or some arbitrary or ambiguous photo. Mm. I guess um, it's like the one of the most well-known photo photojournalist photos mm. is from, uh, was it, in, it was in Vietnam where the girl's running away from, you know, her village has been napalmed. Yeah, yeah. And she's barely clad, she's screaming, she's a minor. And yet this photo was publicized and it was one of the photos that kind of brought public opinion of Vietnam toppling down. Correct, yeah. So I guess, you can't really pixelate that one. No, and, and we shouldn't. You, we shouldn't. You can. Yeah. It's just you have to make that really awful ethical decision. I, look, I, I find it, um, like I said before, it's dehumanising to hide these elements of the world. It's funny how the Westerners seem, well, from my experience, I get criticism from Western people, not from, I haven't had any criticism from the NGO or the local people in helping these women in the way I did. Um, we need to be confronted. This this is happening. It's a fact. Um, and I, like I said, I'd made the choice not to release the photos until I knew those women were an element of safety. We've got a track from TV on the radio to take <laughs> right now. <laughs> Sorry, I just realised how the hour was getting along. Okay. And I think we could talk about this kind of thing for ages. And I feel sure. like, I definitely feel, and you probably feel it too, that you can't really go, you can go too shallow in these mm. ethical discussions and I'm worried that that's where we're at now because okay. I know that you know that there's more to it and yes. we've talked about this in the past um, but I mean there's only so much justice that you can do yeah. in an hour to a topic <laughs> like this right. it's a pretty wild ride um, so I apologise to anyone who feel like, feels like we haven't done it justice um, but we've got a track by TV on the radio to take now and why do you want to bring this one on? Uh, TV on the radio, one of my favourite bands but the story behind this song was um it's, I, I deal with anxiety um, and I love this song. Um, it's called Trouble and it just gives me an upbeat and it just reminds me that everything's going to be okay. Oh, here comes trouble Put your helmet on We'll be heading for a fall Yeah, the whole thing's gonna blow And the devil's got my number long overdue he'll come looking soon yeah the whole thing's gonna blow oh here comes trouble these people talk 
tuned in to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5, bit of TV on the radio with a track called Trouble. I've been in the studio with Ian Flanders 
for the past hour and we're about to start uh, wrapping up and we're kind of, you know, we've been talking about whether or not there's a particular uh, NGO that we can mention over mm. there that if people go, well, I find this uh, all abhorrent and I would like to do something about it. I don't just like hearing about it. I'd like to create change and I feel like ballad. Um, but it's actually been quite tricky to find an NGO that you can 100% believe in. I mean, yeah. there's there's been a scandal that's come to pass in the past year yeah. involving a charity called Somali Mom. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny you mentioned about the NGOs. The NGO change that I was originally helping, they uh, fell apart. They had uh, legal issues due to misuse of funds. And so the the, rate, the uh, NGO that ended up raiding and rescuing the women and the children were a different NGO that I originally started with. Um, with Solomon Iman, um, I remember buying her book, um, I think it was Road to Freedom, something like that. Incredible inspirational story. Um, she was voted in one of Time's most powerful women. Yeah, 100 um, most powerful women yeah, in the world. Yeah, um, influential. In, met Hillary Clinton and heads of states, you name it. And roughly last year, it all came out that her story is a lie, um, which was just incredible. And I actually got the heads up from uh, an investigating officer when this project started. He said, why are you here? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, I read Solomon Mann's book. You know, I want to help. I want to do something along these lines. And he said... Um, be careful about that one. Stuff's he said something along the lines of stuff's, um, stuff's going to come out, and wow. I I didn't want to believe it. I couldn't believe it. This incredible figure of slavery, and she paid girls to tell lies um, about um, being trafficked so she could get more money into her NGO. Wow. Yeah. And then did the NGO end up actually making great change, or you know, was it was it a lie for a greater good? Is if there is one. Solomon Mann's NGO? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the flip coin to it. You know, she's still got people supporting her and there is a valid point that the people that she was rescuing, she made a very good change, you know, a change for the better. But the, the way she went about it was through fabrication. So it's kind of hard to point at one particular Cambodian uh, charity mm. to get behind. So I, I just, I rang... Um, anti-slavery Australia to try and figure out and they're also kind of on the they're not really able to suggest a particularly good one but slavery does happen here in Australia and slavery and exploitation in different forms Um, it's yeah a very different landscape here than in Cambodia obviously but if you do want to um, create change you can go to their website and um, they have a lot of information on their site that's really useful so I think we have to actually get out of the studio now and uh, we are going to leave in style with a really really great track now which one do we have Uh, this is Sonny's Burning Birthday Party Um, if there's a soundtrack to my photography it's Nick Cave and he starts this song off the it's the greatest beginning to a song I've heard up who wants to die 